always a privilege to be able to come to God's house and especially to be able to stand before his people and proclaim his great and wonderful name. Thankful for Brother Abraham that was here last week to remind us that we should keep our comments to about 10 minutes. <laughs> Brother Jeff always used to say it was five minutes and of course we know how that went. And so uh, I will try this morning to keep them somewhere between Abraham's 10 and Brother Jeff's five. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you and would like to turn to the book of Isaiah, we're going to look at a, a very familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 40 and in verse 31. I will start in verse 29. It says, He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall away. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. You know, he says, even the youths shall weary and faint. You know, I, I, I look at our young people over here, and I, you know, every day I wish I had the, the energy that, that Patrick and, and even Elliot and all the rest of them have, you know, that we could go and go, but even the young people eventually wear out and get tired. I, I, I can remember my own children. I remember many times that especially Jason would just go so hard all day long and literally fall asleep at the dinner table trying to eat dinner. We'd just pick him up and carry him to bed. He would stay there all night long. They have the energy, but it says, even the young shall weary. They shall utterly fail. It says, but they that wait upon the Lord, they shall renew their strength. That word renew, it literally means to change. To change the tired into the stronger, into the... Uh, and, and to make it new, turn it into strength. The word strength, they shall renew their strength. It means to power, might, your substance. He is going to renew your very substance. That that makes you strong. It also carries with it the connotation of standing firm. Standing in place. You stand firm in the faith. We stand firm in our reliance upon God mm -hmm. and upon our need for His strength in our lives. He shall renew your strength and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. I didn't really know this until I started studying this. Did you know that eagles actually molt their feathers? As they age, they actually shed their feathers and replace them with new ones. He renews them, if you will. So yes, we, 
can shed off our, our old tired self and He will renew us with His strength. But I think even beyond that, it carries with it the image of rising above. God will renew our strength so that we will rise up as eagles. Eagles fly higher than any other bird. And when we are walking in God's strength, we will soar above the world. Jesus says, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And when we are walking in His strength, we overcome the world also. We mount up with wings as eagles. It says, we shall run and not be weary, and we shall walk and not faint. God continues to renew our strength over and over again so that we can continue without growing tired. <laughs> These are benefits, if you will, of waiting on the Lord. You know, over in, in Psalms chapter 37, it says, uh, wait on the Lord and keep His ways and He will exalt you. He will lift you up and that we would inherit the land. There are many benefits that we have to waiting on the Lord. Renewing our strength, not growing tired in our well-doing, being exalted. But then that has to beg the question, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? If it's going to have all these, these benefits for us, what does it mean? What are we doing when we wait upon the Lord? Are we going to sit down in our easy chair at home and prop up our feet and say, all right, Lord, I'm waiting. If you go to the Strong's Concordance, it's word 6960. So you can look it up when you get home, John. It means to bind together as you would bind together a cord. To bind together. To look for or to expect. It means to be patient. When we bind ourselves together with God and with God's people, we are waiting on the Lord. When we sit by patiently, we're waiting on the Lord. But I, I want you to notice something very specific about this. It does not say to wait for the Lord. It says to wait upon the Lord. Because there, there is a Another connotation that it has to wait upon somebody. Yes, we are to be patient. We are to look for Him. We are to look for His answers to our prayers. We are to look for His workings in our lives. But we are also to wait upon the Lord. And most of you know, I grew up in the food business. I've worked most of my life in restaurants and bakeries and whatnot. And when I was much younger, 
you used to have in these establishments something that was called a waiter or a waitress. They don't call them that anymore. I guess it's sexist or whatever they've decided it is. It's not a good word anymore. You know what they call them now? Servers. What did your waiter or waitress do? They served. Brothers, when we wait upon the Lord, we are to be serving the Lord. Mm-hmm. How do we serve the Lord? <coughs> Matthew chapter 25 gives us a, a little glimpse of that, I think. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, it says, For the kingdom of heaven, this is Christ speaking. If you've got a red letter edition, this is red letter. Not that I think that really makes a whole lot of difference because the black letters are God's words too. But for those of you that are sticklers, this is a red letter. Red letter quotes. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received five talents went and traded with the same, and made he them five uh, five talents. Likewise, he that had received two He also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh, and he reckoned with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, The Lord, thou delivered unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that he received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. And his Lord said, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there hast that is thine. And the Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knowest I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto them which had ten talents. For unto everyone that hath shall be given and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away 
even that which he had. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see here three servants all waiting on their Lord. Waiting on his return. Two of the servants, though, while they were waiting, they served their master. They worked in his kingdom. They worked at his, his, his whatever it is, farm, whatever you call them over there. He took and he put it to service. And when the Lord returned, what did he say? Well done, thy good and faithful servant. But the third servant, what did he do? He sat down in his easy chair. He propped up his feet. And he waited on the Lord to come home. There are two ways to wait. I believe that while we are here in this kingdom, we are to be working, waiting on the Lord to return. We are to be serving Him in all that we do. Galatians. Chapter 5. Verse 13 says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in this one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We serve the Lord when we serve each other. You know, we're, we're told that we're to, to come into his house and to meet here and, and to not uh, forsake the assembling of ourselves. And that's true, I believe we should be here. And this is one way to worship the Lord, but we also worship him and serve him when we serve one another. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 says let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil con conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. You want to serve the Lord? Hold fast your profession of faith. Mm -hmm. Remember the word strengthen says to stand firm. He'll renew your strength. He'll give you the strength to stand firm. Worship Him. Stand firm in your faith. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Again, we are to serve God by serving one another. Provoking one another in love unto good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so, uh, so much more as you see the day approaching. So again, we're to be in God's house. We're to be here worshiping. We're also to be here exhorting one another. Raising each other up. Exhorting us to, to work and to labor in God's house. It says, not forsaking 
the assembly. I always think about the story of the man who had cold <laughs> had grown cold in his attendance at church. And he had gone several Sundays without coming, so the preacher decided he was going to go and, and visit him in his home. And he got there, and the man had a fire in the fireplace, and the preacher and the old man sat down next to the fireplace, and they talked for a few minutes, and the, the dear brother told him, he said, well, preacher, I, I believe I can serve God's people and worship God here at home as well as I can at church. I'm sure some of you have heard people say that before. I can worship God at home. I don't have to be at his house. The preacher thought for a minute. Without saying anything, he picked up the, the tongs from the fireplace. And he reached into the, to the glowing, burning coals, and he picked one of the coals up. And he removed it from the rest, and he set it out on the hearth by itself. And after just a couple of seconds, that coal began to grow dim. The, the fire began to leave it. And after just a minute, it was cold. The brother looked at it for a minute. And he looked at the preacher and he says, I understand. Brother, we need each other. In order to keep from growing cold, in our service to the Lord. That's why the assembly of ourselves into God's house is so important. We need to be here so that we can exhort each other, so that we can lift each other up, so that we can make that fire burn hot. Finally, in John chapter 13... Verse 35, I, I was really glad to hear Brother Randy use this. I, I end my prayers often with this because I think it's so important. Verse 34 says, A commandment I've given to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Again, we serve God when we love one another. And then verse 35 says, By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Brother, if we want those outside of the church to know that we are God's people, if we want those outside the church to know the God that we serve, we do that by loving each other. That is how those outside the church will know that we're God's people. If you want to serve the Lord, if you want to wait upon God, serve His people. It's through our service to God and to each other that He will renew our strength, that He will cause us to soar with the eagles, that He will allow us to work in His kingdom without being weary. I'll just give a, a hearty amen to that. Um,
Don't disagree with anything he said. But I'm going to give you one tangent before I go to my text. <laughs> In our reading this week, we all read Exodus 1 through 20, right? We're supposed to. <laughs> We're going to finish Exodus this week. You may have caught over in Exodus 19 and 4, God speaking, it says, Ye have seen, he's speaking unto Moses, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians. All this before, you've had the, all the miracles. I mean, just the serious whooping that he puts on Egypt. He says, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. So there is definitely an aspect of this verse in Isaiah that's dealing with here and now. But there's also an aspect of him delivering you in the most amazing way where you're going to literally be lifted off this planet and go and meet him in the sky. Um, it's over in Matthew uh, 26. And you've got this uh, uh, chapter that's full of... It's not 26, is it? No. No, no, it's 24. It's 24, verse 26. Um, we've got this, this prophecy, this uh, combination of things that are going to be fulfilled uh, when the destruction of the temple. You've got things that are going to be when Jesus comes back. It's all kind of in there. But this particular one, he's given an admonition. of If someone says that the Christ has come back and he's out here somewhere in a secret place, he says, don't believe it. All right, that's what it says in 26. They shall say unto you, behold, he's in the desert. Go not forth. Or behold, he's in the secret chambers. Believe it not. Someone's telling you, Christ has already come back. You just got to go to him. Said, Don't believe it. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth unto the west, shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. All right? You can see lightning all the way across. It's going to be open. It's going to be public. It's going to be very visible. Right? And then it's got this interesting expression. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Okay? And that's always kind of thrown me off. Like, well, what's the dead body? Well, if you see a dead body out in the field and you see all those things hovering, you know where the center of action is. Think about it this way, that you know, Jesus described you know, in Psalms that the Lord has prepared a body. He's the body. And you've got the angels going around gathering his people and bringing them up on eagles' wings. Right? That's where we're all going to be. He's going to mount. And this is the, so, such an amazing deliverance. Like when he brought them out of Egypt, it wasn't, all right, we're going to sneak out. Right? It's not like Paul getting let down by a basket when they were trying to kill him. Like that was just, all right, we're just trying to survive. We're trying to get out by the skin of our teeth. No. I'm going to bring you out with such a deliverance. It's like I took you and lifted you off on an eagle because ain't nobody going to stop us. It's bold, it's public, it's visible. And that's what he's going to do when he removes you from this world and brings you unto himself. So that's my tangent, all right? Elliot, pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would with our service, Lord. Uh, thank you for it. gone before. Pray that you would be with us. I pray that we have the ears to hear and um, that we would take what is said and apply it to our lives. Amen. All right. You may notice pulls full. All right. That's a good thing. So we're going to talk about baptism this morning. I got three questions. I'm going to try and answer. You may already be sitting there and know these answers. That's good. I'm going to remind you. You may sit in there and think you know, and you don't really know. You may be sitting there saying, I don't know. So wherever you are on the spectrum, it's good for you. All right? Question one, why? Why do we baptize? Question two, what does it mean? Three, why do we rebaptize? All right? Those are the three we're going to try and cover. 
you go over an hour and a half, I'll pause and we'll finish in the afternoon. <laughs> Why do we baptize? That's an easy one. Christ told us to. Matthew 28, 19. After the resurrection, speaking to his disciples, Jesus came and spake unto them. Matthew 28, verse 18. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, the end of the age. Amen. All right? So there's going, there's teaching, there's baptizing, and there's more teaching. All right? Teaching, baptizing, teaching. All right? Baptize. All right? The word literally, Greek, baptizo, all right? means to immerse, to submerge, to make fully wet. That's what the word means. How you get drizzle, drizzle from that, I have no idea. All right? John and John... 3 and 23, you don't have to flip there. It's giving the region, region he was baptizing in, it said because there was much water there. All you need is a drizzle, drizzle. You can do that with a cup. Right? That's not the pattern that we're given. And the thing about us old Baptists is we try to follow the pattern given in the New Testament. That's it. It's really not that. If it's there, we try to do it. If it's not, we try real hard not to. Right? It's not, not overly complicated. So you've got to baptize, to immerse, to be fully wet. That's why John was there where much water was. So this is the commandment given to the disciples by Jesus after the resurrection. You'll see in Acts, they obey. They start following that pattern. Acts, let's just go to 2 and 24, just for a couple examples. 2 and 41, this is right after Peter's given up and given a fiery sermon on Pentecost. Right? They, They hear, they're convicted, Men and brethren, what shall we do? This is verse 37, after their hearts are pricked, when he's been teaching. Peter said unto them, Repent! Stop doing what you were before, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remissions of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The Lord's doing the calling. All right? And with many other words, he did testify and exhort or teached, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. And they that received, that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Okay? Jesus gave the commandment. That's reason enough. But then you can see here the disciples and the apostles are following that. They're teaching, repent, be baptized and go forward with the teaching, right? You can see that later. Again, over in Acts chapter 8, you've got when Philip um, joins himself unto a Gentile. He was a eunuch, man out of Ethiopia. Uh, let's just jump down to verse 35. The, the backstory is that the eunuch has been uh, reading in his chariot uh, the book of Isaiah, actually, and he calls Philip up and says, you know, tell me about this. You know, Who is this guy talking about? And he's reading where the... He is led as a sheep to the slaughter and a dumb lamb to a shear, so it opened his mouth. And, and he wanted to know, who is he talking about? And Philip opened his mouth. This is verse 35. He opened his mouth and began at that same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. All right. And as they came on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? 
And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they come up out of the water, the, Philip, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Okay? All right. You believe, you hear that teaching, you're baptized. All right? Now, it'd be an interesting study for you. You can do this on your own. Go look at every reference to baptism and see what happens to those people afterwards. Right? I imagine you'll find a pattern there about them believing, rejoicing, being excited, following, all these things. And so how folks can make a case for baptizing a little baby who can't do those things, it doesn't really hold water. Um, but we won't, we won't go to that for today. All right? So the baptism... Why do we do it? Christ told us to. Simple enough. It was a commandment. It's an ordinance of the church. Right? Harder question, perhaps. What does it mean? Right? And before I answer that, I'm going to ask the opposite question of what does it not mean? There are some who will tell you that it is a prerequisite. That's a lawyer word, sorry. That it is a thing you must do to get to heaven. Right? So, have you ever heard that? Somebody said, well, if you're not baptized, you can't go to heaven. Right? So what you're trying to say is that if you are not baptized, you're going to hell. Right? That's not what it means. Bingo. That's right. Because our salvation is not dependent on any of our works, including baptism. And you could see that. Uh, we could spend days talking about that. We'll try to spend just a couple minutes. Let's look at Romans chapter 4. I've really enjoyed reading Romans these past uh, few days. Um, I'm going to try and really limit myself because I could go on a lot of different directions that don't have to do with baptism, but still. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, is explaining um, Abraham in the context of faith versus works. Right? What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? So this is... Um, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Okay, so you've got these two different things being discussed. You've got faith and you've got works. Works is when you do something. And if you're doing something to earn salvation, then salvation is not a free gift of grace. It's saying that God owes you. Can you look at God in a straight face, with a straight face, and say, You owe me? No. Bingo. No, you can't. It is not of works. But by his grace, you can believe what he said that he did. That's faith. Faith is believing that what God said is real and true. Believing who he is and what he said. As Abraham believed on him that justifieth the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? That's me and you. 
This ain't some third party out there. That's us. Okay? And his faith is counted for righteousness. All right? Now, some folks can get confused and they think, well, that, uh, you know, I've got to make myself have this faith. And that's how I get salvation. Well, guess what? Faith is a gift. Right? It is a free gift. If you can believe, it's because it was given to you by God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, very familiar passages. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, both grace and faith. They're both gifts. Verse 9 says, not of works, lest any man should boast. I get in that pool, and it's because of that pool I get to go to heaven. That's a work, and I can boast. But I believe that what Jesus said that he did, that he actually did, and I'm able to do that because he gave that faith to me. You can see that expressed as a gift uh, over in Philippians 1 and 29. It says, For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, the context of there is talking about the suffering. That's something you're given for his sake. And that's something you won't hear a prosperity preacher talk about. You're given the, the suffering for Christ's sake. But what else are you given before that? To believe on him. You're given that. Okay? So it's by faith. Okay? So what is it not? It's not, baptism is not the work that you must fulfill in order to go to heaven. Right? It's that kind of logic that gets people really distressed and makes them want to dump babies. Right? Or sprinkle babies because that would be traumatic. Right? So it's bad doctrine that leads to bad practice. Right? But what is it? Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 6. What does it mean? All right, and we're just going to jump in this, and I'll try and give context in just a second. Romans 6, starting in verse 1, says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He responds back, God forbid. It means absolutely not. Don't even say it. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of of life. Okay, so I'm just going to pause there. You know, back in uh, chapter 4, you were talking about this, this um, difference between being faith and works. Right? And, and Abraham was given faith. You know, he was given a promise that, to a natural sense, would sound nuts. I'm going to take, you know, if we've got a hundred-year-old man sitting here on the front bench, and someone comes up and says, you're going to have a lot of a lot of folks come out of you that are going to be many, many nations. You've never had, you know, a kid yet, and your wife's 90, and naturally that would be very hard to accept, right? What does it say in 4 and uh, 16? It says, Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure not only to the seed not only to those which are of the law, but also to that which is the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. 
So what this is doing here is talking about the expansion of Abraham being the figurehead father of not only the natural Jews, but also spiritual Israel as well. As Gentiles who God has called, right? Many nations. Before him, before him, whom he believed. He believed God. What did he believe? God who quickened the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they are. So what did Abraham believe? Who against hope, naturally, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in the faith, he considered not his own body, now dead. I mean, old man here. He didn't look and say, well, this this just can't be, right? When he was about 100 years old, neither considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. She'd already gone through menopause. Like, she was not in a bearing frame anymore. But he didn't look at those things. He staggered not at the promise. He didn't waver when he heard this promise from God through unbelief, but was strong in the faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded. All right, listen to this next verse. If you want a good definition for faith, sometimes that's kind of a squishy word for you, right? Faith, we hear it so much, but what does it really mean? Here's a real good definition for faith, all right? Being fully persuaded that what he, God, what God had promised, God was able also to perform. That's faith. (coughs) It's really not that complicated. God gives you the ability to believe God. To believe his word, to believe it's real, to trust it, to apply it. To believe who God says he is and that what he's going to do, he'll do. That's faith. All right? And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. That belief, he was imputed as righteous for believing God. Okay? So how does this get to chapter 6? We go on forward to to chapter 5, and it's going to discuss um, Jesus' sacrificial death, how he loved you, even not because you were good, and it's described how naturally we we may die for someone who's really great, maybe even somebody who's good, but for the the nasty, sorry folks, no. But that's when Jesus died for us, right? He commended his love towards us while we are yet sinners. Christ died for us. This is 5 and 8. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we are enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So he justified us to God, right? His work was perfect, right? In the beginning of time, it was assured that it was going to happen, right? And so in that sense, you were justified from the beginning. And then you were justified um, again in the sense where he actually completed the work. It's now done. You know, it is finished. And then you're justified again when you're born again and you get to experience the joy of that, the knowledge of what he has done for you within your own head and heart. All right? So that's why we can joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By now we've received the atonement. The atonement means the exchange. There was an exchange made for you and for me on the cross. <clears throat> All right? And then it's going to go on and it's described sin coming into the world. This is by Adam. Right? You had that one sin and by that sin... All men um, are sinners, right? We know that because they all die, right? The law hadn't been given yet. That wasn't until Moses, but it was still sin because they died, right? Death reigned is how it's described. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though the law hadn't been given. And then the law is given to teach just how bad sin is, 
It's a revealing. It's a multiplier effect. That sin is terrible and the law comes and explains how awful it is. And then Christ comes. And as bad as all that is, grace is so much bigger that it can wipe it all out. Okay? That's what's going on in 5. All right? Just reading verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So the sin was there, the law was given, so the offense, you could realize the magnitude of how bad it was, but yet grace was even far above that. Even far above that. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace, unmerited favor, reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. That grace, the end of that, is eternal life. Not death. The end of sin is death. Right? So he comes and he reigns. He's defeated that. That's our context that gets into this of chapter 6. Is what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now in the big picture he had just said sin was there. It was compounded, revealed by the law to be so awful and then grace comes in and just swoops it and crushes it. Should we somehow in our individual lives then continue in sin so that grace is going to be magnified? The answer is God forbid. Don't let anyone ever make that argument to you of well you can just continue to sin because it makes Christ look good because he gets to save you from it. No. False. Heresy. Stop. Right? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? When you were born again, you become dead to sin. Beforehand, when you were dead in trespasses and sins, it was your master. It was your ruler. It had the charge and reign over your life. Now it does not. You have a new master. Bought and paid for. You report to him. You serve him. You wait on him. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not. This is saying, don't you know? This is something you must know. That so many of us as baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. You are baptized. So what is this? It's a symbol. Is it a work that gets you in heaven? No. But it's a symbol of how you, in the same way you've become such an intimate follower of Christ that you're even following him into the grave in the waters as you are dying to that old self, that old man. You are putting him in the grave. And just like he came out of the grave, resurrected as a new creature, the first, you come up as a new creature created by him. So you were showing the death, burial, and resurrection and that you are going to be a co-participant with that. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Glory of the Father raised Christ. In the same way, we're raising up so that we also should walk in newness of life. Not to continue in the same old way. It's new. It's the new man. It's the follower. The path of righteousness. For if we had been planted together... In the likeness of his death, we all shall so be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? It's a type pointed to that final great resurrection. Right? And there'll be no more death. That's what it's pointing to. Knowing this, 
that our old man is crucified with him. Aren't you glad he gave us the ordinance of baptism rather than the ordinance of crucifixion? There are some folks who get a little nutty and practice that where they'll try and recreate the crucifixion scene. We're not, we're not called to that. This points to that. But internally, our old man should be crucified. Mortify the members of the flesh. Mortify means put to death. It means don't make a pet allowance for them. Don't have a nice little sandbox where you build up the walls real high so the other church folks can't see it and you just kind of keep your pet in there, right? No, that's pet sins. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're not trying to look self-righteous. That's what the Pharisees did. They wanted to look good but have all the nastiness still on the inside. It's to put it to death. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We should not attend on sin. We should not wait upon sin. It should not have the control over our life. For he that is dead is freed from sin. You're freed from sin. That's good news. For if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ be ra- knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now that you're living, you're dead to sin, and you're living unto God. And you don't have to fear death anymore. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. That was what you did before, obeying the lust, the desires, the carnal desires, the things that you wanted. It doesn't need to be reigning and controlling you anymore. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. What does it mean by members? That means your hands. And your mouth, your ears, your eyes, all parts of you, don't yield it. Because that's the thing. It's a yielding. It's a voluntary thing that you're doing now. You're not being forced. When you make these mistakes now, it's of your own volition. You're yielding it. No one's forcing you. Neither yield ye members of the instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But what should you do? Yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as the instruments of righteousness unto God. Does he expect you to yield your whole self? Absolutely. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Right? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Really just another way of the same question as before. And the answer is the same. God forbid! And he asks a question. He says, Know you not? Don't you know this? That to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey. So if you're obeying sin, you're making yourself a servant to sin. Whether of sin, and the end of that is death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. 
I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness, pureness, sacredness. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof now ye are ashamed? And you should be ashamed now of those things. You may still make the same mistakes that you were making before, but you will not enjoy it the same way if you're a born-again child of God. It should be like ashes in your mouth. There should be a shame that comes with it. Stop leading and yielding your members to iniquity. Yield them instead unto God and to righteousness. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Okay. Now that's a lot going on to answer the question, what does baptism mean? You need all that! Right? It's a symbol, but it doesn't stop there. Right? Last time we talked about, are you ready to submit to God? And you say yes? And you follow through with baptism? Then we got to really start trucking. We've got to start applying. We've got to start learning. We've got to have that teaching and we've got to continually, continually, continually do it. Rodine's right. you got to be among those who want that too. That's how you get encouraged in this cold, dark world. If you go out and hang out on your own, it's like trying to be a coal in a bucket of water. Good luck. You may sizzle those around you or steam them for just a second, but it's not a good long-term plan. All right? So those are two of the three. What's the third? We're fine on time. Third question. Why do we rebaptize? Rebaptize. All right? Let me just preface this with every group draws a line somewhere. Everybody believes in rebaptism. They may not say that. What they'll say is that your baptism wasn't valid because of X, Y, Z. Therefore, we want you to be baptized could be a group that doesn't believe in infant baptism, and so you were baptized in infants, that's not good enough, come get baptized now. It could be that you believe you were with a group that was so radically different, I'm just speaking from others, you know, like not even the Catholic Church will recognize a baptism of the Mormons, okay? The Mormons don't believe that God is unique, they believe that he was once a man and became a God, and that you, if you're a good Mormon, may have the chance of becoming a God too and have your own universe. I mean, just like Nutty stuff. Even the Catholic Church doesn't recognize that baptism. Okay? So everybody draws a line somewhere. All right? So let's look at a couple of scriptures, and then I'll talk a little bit more. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we have an example of a rebaptism. Acts chapter 19, verse 1 through 5. It came to pass that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. So Paul's hanging out in Ephesus and finding certain disciples. So these are followers of God. And he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, "Uh, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. They're like, What you talking about? What's that? We hadn't even heard that that thing existed. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. So John, the forerunner for Jesus, they had become a follower and of the baptism of repentance, they were baptized under that, but they hadn't heard the rest of the story. 
And Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after, that is Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you had one who had incomplete information, now having complete information, and they were baptized under that true gospel. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... In verse 17, um, the context here is actually taking communion and the Lord's Supper. Paul is chastising the Corinthian church because there are divisions among the church. All right? There are sects, sects, S-E-C-T, groups of people who are dividing themselves. Um, It says there also must be heresies among you. A heresy is just a, a division. You've got a difference of thought. Verse 17 says, Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not that you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies, a disunion among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest unto you. So this is a problem within the church, that they were not all on the same Page. They had different doctrines. They had different understandings about what the gospel was. This is one reason that we require, anyone who comes to the old Baptist, to be rebaptized. We don't know what it is you were taught or what you believe. But when we're here together and coming to take communion, we all have to be on the same page, under the same gospel, under the same doctrine. Because um, there's only one. You see that over... In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9. He's upbraiding the Galatian church. This is Paul because they've abandoned the doctrines already. I marvel ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Right? They're following something else. Which is not another. It's, it's kind of an oxymoron. You can't say another gospel. There's only one gospel. It's the good news. All right? Anything else is a perversion or distortion or incompleteness of that. Which is not another, but there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. And as we said before, so say I now again. He repeats himself. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than you have received, let him be accursed. Okay, so talking about the Mormon church, she's doing just a little bit of research this week. Their leader had a vision from an angel and a new revelation, and they're following that. Guess what? Any man or angel gives you any other vision other than what's already here, let him be accursed. He's a lion. All right? So... We, as a church, want to be on the same page, teaching, believing, and preaching the same gospel. Now, will I say that I've got it absolutely 100% correct? I can't stand here and do that. But I've got it to the best of my knowledge. And before I started, before I was ordained, When I read through the scriptures, I was reading through it with a critical eye to see if I was going to be an old Baptist preacher. I needed to confirm it 
for myself that on every single doctrine I was thoroughly convinced. Okay? Not just because mom and daddy said so or grandma said so or whoever, but that what they say they believe matches up as closely as my understanding to what Scripture teaches. That's what we want. Why were the Bereans noble? Because they were fact-checking Paul on every point to see if what he was saying was there in Scripture. So if just because the preacher said so, you know, it's not like a parent, well, it was because I said so. No, Bubba, it's because you can back it up with Scripture and not a twisted and distorted version of it, or version or interpretation. So that's y'all's job, is making sure that I'm staying right in line. You have, a, you have an independent responsibility to that. I'm going to do my best to make sure I stay in line too, so together we can help each other. But this is the reason that we require rebaptism, so that we are all baptized unto one gospel, and that's the gospel that's going to be taught and reaffirmed and exhorted and reminded over and over and over and over and over and over again till we dead when the Lord comes back. That's what we're here. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to worship the Lord in spirit, important, and in truth. Thank you. Time and attention. Lord, how sweet is to see the